This episode is brought to you by McDonald's. Not sure you've heard of them. <laughs> Up and coming uh, little restaurant, but they're making it. They're the little engine that could. You know, the moment of bliss when you spot your fries being scooped into the carton and suddenly time slows down. I have that all the time. I love their fries. Oh, yeah. yes. McDonald's fries hit different when they're free. That's another thing I'll tell you. And when they belong to your friends, there's no better feeling than thinking you're out of fries and then you discover extra fries at the bottom of your bag or else my son still hasn't finished his fries yeah. and I'm done with mine. And uh, he used to be weaker than me so I could just take them. Yeah. Now I can't because he's stronger than me. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no wrong way to eat McDonald's fries, but we all think our way is the best way. And I like stealing them from someone else. That's my favorite <laughs> way. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. McDonald's, check them out sometime. They're everywhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My name's Eric Idle, and I feel moderately aroused about being Conan O'Brien's friend. Oh. You're moderately aroused? Yes, is which is about as much as I can get at this age. <laughs> <laughs> Farley's here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walk in blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are going to be friends. Hey there, and welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, uh, my little podcast. Really just a, a scheme, a grift to force people to talk to me and possibly end up being my chum. A word you don't hear much anymore, and for good reason. Uh, in fact, I've got some chums with me right here. <laughs> Sonny, would you say you're my chum? I'm your, I'm your chum. No one says chum. It's, weir it's a weird It's a weird word. one, right? It's also what you throw in the ocean to attract sharks. Yes, I know. Isn't yeah. that interesting? We're mm -hmm. your bloody fish guts. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and I, uh, do you need an introduction at this point, Matt Gorley? I guess some, they're always first-time listeners, long-time yeah. fans. Uh, yeah. Matt Gorley, you are my chum as well. Do you ever use chum? You seem like a guy that might use chum. I think maybe ironically, chum, wow. chap, uh, boon companion. Right. Yeah. Right, my boon companion. That's yeah. a good I've one. Never yeah. heard that Classic. one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I no. say pal a lot. Pal's good. Why do some words stick around and others just sort of fade? Chum? Imagine if you did this show 100 years ago, it would have been Conan O'Brien needs a chum. Yeah. Well, also, it would have been called Filthy Irish Immigrant Needs a Chum. <laughs> How did you get in the studio? Yeah. Dirty, dirty Irish Dog Needs a Chum. Uh, scum that should just be cannon fodder uh, for the Northern troops in the Civil War. Soldiers. <laughs> uh, caveman uh, <laughs> recently arrived from the country uh, with no food. Anyway, we could go down a darker and darker path. There was a time, I, you know, I grew up in a household. My grandmother lived with us for quite a while, and she used to tell us stories about being persecuted when she was young because she, she was born in like 1890. In Massachusetts? Yeah, in Massachusetts wow. and in, in Western Massachusetts, she would remember people playing pranks on you if you were an Irish Catholic and teasing you if you were an Irish Catholic. So she used to try and warn me, I'll be careful when you go to school. Like, you know, what are you talking about? But doesn't my that show you like- My teacher's wearing a dashiki, <laughs> you know? But how <laughs> good the Irish poster, had it. There's a poster of Malcolm X on the wall of my English class. <laughs> Malcolm X and the Fonz. And you're like, look out! They're going to taunt you for being Irish Catholic today. But the Irish, the persecution they face is pranks and teasing. Yeah. That's having it pretty Yeah, good. the big one was yeah. my grandmother used to say, now today on St. Patrick's Day, she'd say, they're going to come after you pretty hard today. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> what? What are you talking about? And she used to say, they're going to wear orange, which is the Protestant yeah. color. So she said, the other fellows will wear orange to try and get your goat, you know, to tease you. So the others will wear orange to get you, and they'll put chalk in your milk when you're not drinking. When you're not looking, I'm sorry. When you're not looking, they'll put chalk in your milk. And I'm like, uh-huh. Well, off to school now <laughs> to see my Iranian friends. 
had the most diverse. I had the most diverse school in the world, and this was at the height of the Iranian hostage situation. If the if and when you know people were really mad at Iranians. This yeah. is like 1979 for taking uh, our our people at the embassy hostage. It'd be great if I got to school and the Iranian kids during the height of that were like, look, look at the Catholic. <laughs> we're gonna put chalk in your milk. What does that do? I think it just tastes terrible. Yeah. You drink your milk, and keep in mind, milk then tasted terrible anyway. Because mm-hmm. in 1890, they weren't wasn't uh, homogenized or anything. Probably straight out of the teat. Yeah, yeah. it probably just uh, you know everything tasted uh, horrible in the 19th century. People didn't things didn't start to taste good. I looked it up <laughs> until 1965. Okay. That was the first time food tasted good. Yeah, pumped full of hormones. Uh, I don't know. I don't know I what mean, they did. They just started adding a ton of really good, cool chemicals that made everything of, taste good. A lot of salt and I think stuff. whenever they invented booberry and Count Chocula <laughs> is when stuff started to taste good. Yeah. And before that, everything just tasted horrible. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. Y- okay, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. The first Thanksgiving was called This Blows. <laughs> the day of This Blows. Eat your really skinny turkey. Mmm, look, here's a root. That we did you boil it? No, we just let it sit in the sun for one minute. Try and keep it down, then drink this corn husk. Uh, anyway, very excited about our guest today. Very excited. Uh, my guest today is a. Uh, and people say comedy legend. I get that all the time. Conan, Conan, comedy legend. Right, Sana? I've never heard anybody say that and about I'm you. I'm trying to get someone to say it. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> so I sad. I if I planted the seed. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I don't get it, but uh, <laughs> this guy really, I think, probably hears it 10 times a day. He is a comedy legend. He's one of the members of the iconic comedy group, Monty Python, the group that changed it all. His book, Always Look on the Bright Side, of Life, which details his illustrious career, is available now. Uh, I am lucky enough to call him a friend. I'm honored he's with us today, truly honored. Uh, Eric Idle. Eric. I am uh, spectacularly delighted uh, that you took the time to sit down with me uh, on this podcast. The only reason I invented this podcast was so that I could sit with the people I want to speak to most. And that, sir, includes you. I'm just, I'm really, uh, it's a joy. Uh, And uh, you wrote a book, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, your memoir. I devoured it because uh, this is the book I've been waiting for. That and the Third Testament to the Bible. (laughs) <laughs> the one that redacts it goes into the, over time yeah it goes into over and it redacts a lot of the stuff in the yeah, second testament right, right. it does yes <laughs> uh, no I was just the middle aged testament uh, middle aged testament yeah yeah <laughs> thou shalt become only moderately aroused uh <laughs> Uh, the book is a joy. Well, and you very kindly wrote about it and put it on a blurb, which was more than kind of you. It was very sweet of you, and I was very touched by that. Well, thank, thank you. you. I, I wrote it on one copy <laughs> in a Barnes & Noble and then ran out. Uh, <laughs> they erased it. Uh, you know what's nice is there's a bit of a challenge when talking to you about comedy, particularly Python, because it was such a culturally defining moment that you've discussed it and discussed it and discussed it. And I wonder, do you get sick of it? And I think to myself, how do I talk to Eric without asking him the same bloody questions he's been asked 650,000 times? I had a very good friend called George Harrison and we'd bother each other. I'd ask him all the questions about the Beatles and he asked me all the questions about Python. Right. He was an enormous Python fan. I mean, he was ridiculous. Well, he was not just a fan as you, as I already knew this, but you really go in detail in your book, George Harrison went to great lengths to help support you guys financially, um, Life of Brian, when you were in trouble, when you weren't sure you were going to get the movie made. George Harrison wasn't just a casual fan. He was someone who was willing to risk his house. George mortgaged his house to pay for the Life of Brian. Yeah. Which is quite something. It was like four and a half million dollars. In those days. And uh, imagine telling your wife, you know, hey, honey, I've just uh, given all the money from our house to the Pythons. <laughs> to make a movie. <laughs> to make a movie about religion. <laughs> <laughs> that makes fun of the crucifixion yes, at one yes. point. I think it'll be all right. It'll be all right. It should go fine. 
I mean, that's an insane thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it, it's ridiculous. A, it's fantastic. It's a great story. Uh, he obviously has a, he has a cameo in the movie that diehard fans know about. You can you can see George uh, in the movie uh, with a ridiculous beard on in Tunisia. In Tunisia, yeah. And um, you've told me over the years when we've had a moment to chat you've said that you often would play the guitar with George. You talk about it in your book. You would you would sit around and strum the guitar, and I can't even imagine playing guitar with a Beatle, well, especially you, the best guitarist in the Beatles. <laughs> well, he's very encouraging. I mean, he would be very encouraging. So we'd just play. I mean, he loved playing. I mean, he's a musician. Right. It's one of the lucky things I had that I could play guitar so I could sit in with a lot of these chaps and just play, you know. And then at our house, he'd come over and we'd have little sing-songs and, you know, and then he'd teach you how to do the riffs. So you'd ask him, I just don't know how this part of Here Comes the Sun goes. And he would say... It goes like the, and he would. Sh- he would show you like Norwegian wood. He goes, "It's all there." Look, you know, and he'd just show you on the on the keyboard, on the fretboard. Isn't that insane? That's just mind-boggling to me. I mean, in fact, later on in life, he got all these ukuleles, and he'd give everybody who came to dinner a ukulele, and he'd just sit around doing. It's only got four strings, so it's hard to be wrong. Um, and we'd play ukulele songs. That sounds either wonderful or <laughs> or like some kind of punishment. You will go to the lowest level of hell where everyone has a ukulele. <laughs> uh, it's, a nice, it's quite a nice little instrument. It's a beautiful instrument. It's a beautiful instrument. One of the things I loved about the book and, and why I really encourage anyone who's uh, Python fans, comedy fans, just fans of reading about an amazing life is that you, uh, I thought that because you had gone to, had this very posh education you know, and 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 the Pythons all mm-hmm. met each other at the Footlights uh, mm-hmm. in in Cambridge, or not all of you, but some of you. I had always assumed that you came from this upper crust background. I think there's a there's a bit of a American when we hear a British accent, we tend to assume that this person had a valet and a butler when they were growing up, and nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know anybody who ever had a butler. <laughs> but, uh, well, you do now. I, uh, He's I'm waiting sorry, for me outside. Excellent. He's holding I, my trousers I did, in the parking I, lot. <laughs> I did write a play called Pass the Butler. Yeah. In the West End. But, um, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the fact is that um, I think only John was sort of could be called upper middle class. I mean, he was, at, he was at a public school, Clifton College, and then he went to Cambridge. But I was at a little orf- a horrible orphanage in the Midlands, you know, for 12 years. And uh, Palin was at a sort of semi-decent school. Um, Chapman was a grammar school. Uh, Jones was not, you know, we weren't uh, upper class or anything at all. Yeah. And, and you're, I mean, not to say it was Dickensian, but your childhood wasn't easy. We're talking about post-war England, depressed, everyone's on rations, things are rough, you're living in an orphanage. This was, I mean, it- you <laughs> What can, could possibly go right? <laughs> <laughs> it and is. And now, yeah. 110 years later. <laughs> yeah, 110 years later, you get to sit with Hollywood. me <laughs> <laughs> in a little room, in a, in a seedy <laughs> section of Hollywood. <laughs> but uh, you describe this life, and what's so incredible is that you, where you started from, and then all these things that you- Experience. I mean, first of all, going to college for you was very fortuitous. Going to university, that was not something, that could not have happened, right? Well, going to Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge. Any college is like extraordinary. I mean, you couldn't imagine a more different uh, two places than Wolverhampton in the Midlands and Cambridge, which is all 1490s and beautiful old buildings, you know. And it was a bit of a culture shock for you when you first showed up. It was a fabulous culture shock. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that you didn't even have to go to classes. You could do anything you wanted for three years. It was fabulous. But I mainly did comedy. Right. I stumbled into comedy. And you knew right away, this is, I have an aptitude for this. I like this. You you were a funny kid, but you knew once you got uh, working in the in the footlights and performing that this just feels right. It was, it was an extraordinary time because they were very, very gifted. Cleese was there and he was really funny. Chapman was there. Uh, Tim Brooke Taylor, Bill Hardy, there were all these people who were all being very funny. And so it, that's how you learn. You watch people be funny. And so the Footlights was great because you could learn how to be funny and try it out, which is, of course, the only way you can really be funny. And then um, 
you know, you'd perform. You would go and do cabaret. And we got paid for doing cabaret. We go get a car on the weekend, four of us would go and we get 20 quid, I think, mm-hmm. to share. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, uh, but it was great because I learned how you learn how to do it and what to avoid. And um, that was very, very useful because I had another two years doing it before we even, you know, got into the real world. And then the real world, we're talking about what year do you graduate? 65. You graduate in 65. And you and I talked about this once. The whole world changed overnight. It, it did worldwide culturally, but particularly in, in, uh, in England, you saw the whole culture change. It sort of went from this stodgy black and white to vibrant color, mod hair, almost overnight. It was almost overnight. It was the Beatles coming through. The Beatles went on a huge tour of England and they changed everywhere they went. I mean, everywhere it was riots and, well, not riots, but there was great excitement and people bought things and clothes and, and the records. And it was, it was a very exciting time. And what was interesting to me was that at Cambridge, graduates were very, would ask you questions like, who's your favorite Beatle? <laughs> These people doing architecture and maths and right. they're all, they're all Beatle fans. Yeah. Totally. The whole country was Beatle fans and it, it did change the way people could be and feel about themselves and what they could do. Were you apprehensive about taking a career in comedy when this is a question I faced because I went to a, a very nice college here in the United States and I had people critically say to me, wait a minute, you just graduated from this very nice college with this very sophisticated degree. What are you doing? Why are you doing comedy? Shouldn't you be out curing cancer? And, uh, you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would convince them that I really don't, I would not be very good in the lab. And uh, if I found the cure to cancer, I'd lose it. So <laughs> it's here. I found it, but I forgot it. Somewhere it's here. Somewhere in the car. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was doing very well on a career, but now he's gone back into comedy. <laughs> so what did you, uh, it's, it's an undertaking to say, you know what? We're essentially, I'm going to be try and, it's almost like entering vaudeville. It's like you're leaving Cambridge. But you're we very, didn't know that. You didn't know. No. We were leaving Cambridge, and all we knew is we were going on the Footlights tour, mm-hmm. which was going around. And it would end up at the Edinburgh Festival, and, the, you know, you'd be getting a professional engagement. You were, we were on television and things like that. So I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, I went into repertory for a little while, which was terrible. Acting, hated that. Mm-hmm. And then... I fell into writing for radio, what you call podcasts these days. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was a show called I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. Mm-hmm. And it had John Cleese and Graham Chapman, various, you know, various other people from the Footlights. And I, I began a, a career as a writer for radio. And I got three guineas a minute for that. <laughs> really? Yeah, BBC. Three guineas. It's like you have a cab running. You, know, <laughs> just, uh, you have a meter going. <laughs> this is early days. Yeah. So, but then, then I, then I moved and Frost got all of us and pulled it all into television. Something I can relate to is I got started through writing. I would always be thinking constantly, what's funny? What would be a good sketch? What would be a funny sketch? And then uh, my introduction to performing was I would do it for people. Right. The very first time I performed, <laughs> I performed a piece written by John Cleese, which they gave to me. And the very, I looked up at the end and there was John Cleese. I'd never met him before, but we met immediately after he watched me give my first performance in the world. Did he, Isn't that did, extraordinary? did he like your performance? No, was he, he, no, he, <laughs> <laughs> he said he liked it. He said he liked he it. He said he liked it. Yeah. You could tell, yeah, you could yeah. tell he didn't really mean it. Uh, <laughs> you, uh, when you walked in today and I saw you uh, and we, we struggled briefly it was uh, an altercation, but then, <laughs> then we became friendly uh, again. Uh, you handed me this great book that you just. You said this is fresh from London. It's a uh, it's a magazine. It's Radio Times official guide to Monty Python at fifty. Hard to believe that Monty Python turned fifty, and then I realized, of course, it started in nineteen sixty nine. Yes, the math works out. It does work out. <laughs> yeah, I have always maintained. I got started in professional comedy in nineteen eighty five, and. I said the the Brits are way ahead of us. Uh, Monty Python cracked the atom. They figured out that sketches should be as long as they are funny, <laughs> and then they don't need an ending. They figured that out, and here in America, we're still catching up. And 
I honestly believe that you guys uh, were 40, 30 years ahead of your time. I just think it was absolutely incredible. I don't know how you knew to do that, how you knew that a sketch didn't have to have an ending. Well, I think because we'd been professional writers for about six years at that point. We'd been writing for television and doing other TV shows and other comedian shows. And so we'd seen a lot and we'd seen a lot of junk and we didn't much care for light entertainment where people say, you know, now for something completely different, here's a little song, you know. Yeah. We hated all that. So in a sense, it was self-taught. We figured out where we, once we were given a show of our own and we had total charge of it, we were then had to decide what we'd do. And that was um, not obvious or evident, but then it became clear that you could put pile on sketches together and form a theme and go into something else. So we, we, we got a lot of fun playing with that, I think. One of the things the Pythons did so beautifully was you guys played everything with an intense straightness. There's no awareness that something funny is happening. Right. Nothing funny Absolutely. is happening here. No. And, uh, you know, Graham Chapman, angry that someone might think something, as the general, angry that someone might think that something funny is happening here and wants to get things back in shape. What's enough of that. I mean, you talk about this in your book, Ministry of Silly Walks works because nobody thinks what they're doing is funny. Right. And if, if they're smiling or winking or laughing at it, it's not funny. It stops being funny immediately. So you have to take it seriously. I think Mike Nichols did that very well when we did Spam a lot. He would always say to the cast, you've got to take this seriously. If you don't take this seriously, why should the audience? Which I thought was a really good director's note. And I said, but Mike, they're doing the knights who say knee. <laughs> he said, nevertheless. <laughs> it's true. You, you, you have to believe in it. If you are a knight who says knee, oh, I say need you. you know, if you don't believe in it, there's right. no threat and there's no comedy. It's, it's, it just has to be played that way. One of the other things that was always startling to me, you guys, you made this show and you were completely unaware of the effect you were having. It took a long time. It was a slow reaction. It was on very late on a Sunday night, um, about 10, 30, 11 at night. So there wasn't a big audience. The BBC were trying out a time slot because they wanted to see if people were still awake. <laughs> they were. Um, and it took a long time, actually, to, to break it before people, you know, you had that reaction in public or people said, oh, I like your show. You know, they, it, took, it took a long while. We, we didn't mind because we were quite... We weren't sure what we were doing anyway. I mean, I remember the first show being distinctly confused about the audience going, who were hardly laughing at all. They were old people brought in to see a circus. Right. So uh, They really did they think. They really thought they it was really a circus. Was so BBC a circus. had sold them as a circus. So um, it was very bizarre. Uh, but then I think we found our stride and we made each other laugh. And I think that was the point about it is that, we always made it, that was the key. If we could make other people, if we made other people laugh, then it was in our show. That was the only test. You would pair off as writers. Who did you mostly work with? I mostly worked with Eric Idle. Yeah. Because uh, I liked him. I thought he was very clever. You're the only one. He's... <laughs> that was my pair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I find him very entertaining. I hear he's uh, a prick. I'll be honest with you. I hear he's a prick. Well, you know, uh, I stuck with him. <laughs> Give a guy a chance, I say. You know. <laughs> you know what? I admire that about you. Your loyalty <laughs> to, myself? to Eric Idle no, is, right. uh, yeah, is yeah, really yeah. impressive. It's one of the things you learned at boarding school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that and how to get out. <laughs> but it's, uh, you got very disciplined. You were tough on each other. You know, like you'd, you, you would write something maybe with someone else. Honest. and you'd Not necessarily honest. tough. But yeah, it can, can be tough. Yeah. Honest, yeah, saying I, you say, well, that was very funny up till that point, and then it stopped being funny. Yeah, and you have to say that, and they go, oh. and then you know, you may have an idea to add to it, or somebody else may. But I thought, I think that Python um, editorial board was very good. I would imagine there'd be hurt feelings, disagreements. That's just part of the process. But I think that happens when you don't know or trust people. Yeah. And you don't know who they are. But when you're working with somebody, like I've worked already with these people since Cambridge and certainly on TV with Mike and Terry for three or four years. So we were already used to working together and giving criticism. And that's mm -hmm. the most valuable thing you can get in comedy. Saying, don't do that line. It's not funny. Right. <laughs> you want that beforehand, don't you? I usually hear that Afterwards. several years later. <laughs> I wouldn't have done any of that. That whole section of your career was a mistake. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah. 
you guys uh, obviously was it was a surprise to you and you've I know this has been discussed a lot but just describe for me if you would the shock of you come to the United States and you realize that people have memorized the sketches from Python and you weren't at all sure that they gave a shit at all, and they've memorized them. Yes, I mean, the first place you went was Canada, where they were insane about it. They, they learned everything, and they, they learned it all. So uh, that, was, that was interesting. Right. And, but then in America, everybody found it on PBS. PBS, we would never have existed without PBS. We still wouldn't. It would still not be on primetime television. I remember going to, in elementary school, there was a kid who sat next to me, who had memorized, I think, a, I think a 40 minutes straight of Holy Grail. Wow. And it was annoying. Yeah. <laughs> because, no, of course. you know, there was a lot of American kids in my generation that would do the, what would to you sound like an intolerable British accent, but it was all, you know, you know the sketches and, 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 and the routines and everything over and over and over again. And you'd say, it's not, I love it. I love it when I see it on television. I don't want to hear it out of your face. Absolutely. Because you're from, you know, Needham, Massachusetts. And I don't want to hear it. I want to smash you in the face. But I understand it because I did that with Beyond the Fringe when I saw it. I, I, with Peter Cook, Jonathan Miller and, and Dudley Moore. I, I, I bought the album and I learned it all off by heart. And I would do it in my bedroom. I'd mm -hmm. do it. And that's, that made me want to be a comedian. Yeah. Just just learning and doing somebody else's monologue. And that's you can see how it works and you can see what else they might say. And you know, it's good to learn like that. But when you come down, okay, you're in you're in Canada, but you can excuse that. You can say, well, this is a commonwealth. Then you come down to the United States and you're in Well, Los we came here first, actually. Oh, you after, came here first. Canada. We went right across Canada. And then we went to San Francisco to because they in in America we only released the records. Right. So they thought we were recording artists. So the Buddha Records would bring us down to do publicity. Right. So we ended up on the Tonight Show doing twenty minutes in about ten minutes. Wow. Because <laughs> there was so much silence. Yeah. I mean the whole audience went because we was, the curtain opened. He said it was like what was his name Bremner. Brenner? Brenner. Brenner. Oh, David Brenner. Brenner. Said, so said, David Brenner was guest hosting. people from England. They tell me they're funny. I've never seen them. <laughs> Bang, we're on. Yeah. And then we got 20 minutes, and there's a little stage, and there's two of us there going, oh, I've been burying the cat. Is he dead? No, no, he's not. It's all a well cat. I covered up blood all last night. Best to kill it now, I think. Yeah, kill it now. We looked up, then tonight audience is like that. Just mouths open, mouths nothing. Mouths open, agog. Yeah. What the hell is this? Yeah. And that was really great. And we finished it, and we did about four or five sketches, and we ran out into Burbank, and we rolled around on the grass, and we laughed our asses off. It was right. really funny. Right. Nothing's funnier than when you don't make people laugh. <laughs> it's really funny. It's yes. a joke's on you. Yes, yes. <laughs> so totally. Well, you know what happens is when they're not laughing, at first there's panic, but then there's almost a freedom. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but there's like a, oh my God, I'm, it doesn't matter. This is so, this is such a terrible situation that I'm, I'm going to enjoy this. Yes. I'm going absolutely. to enjoy it. And then you're doing it for you, for everyone else on stage and well, for yourselves. Because it is, I mean, we had been going through Canada and they've been giving standing ovations, going crazy and nuts and silence was a bit of a thing we weren't expecting. Right. <laughs> but it was good for us. But once uh, once you're on uh, PBS, once the movies are coming out, and it's uh, you're getting the reactions that rock stars get. Well, yeah, because we were on stage. A, you know, yes, we, but we, it was we a theater. You were in a theater, or you're playing the Hollywood Bowl, and right. it's a happening. Everyone wants to be there. Everyone's excited. They're repeating. They're they're yelling out the the lines to the sketches. That must have been a, a moment of how did this happen? How did we get here? It was, it was, well, it happened first in Canada again, and it was yeah. very strange because it was the only place, the only show you could get a prompt from the audience. Right. <laughs> you forgot your line. Yeah. <laughs> right. And they, parrot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Parrot. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's incredible to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places, whether it's taking video calls from the park or emailing large files while you're grocery shopping. Sona, this is good for you. Is it? Because you're always 
doing whatever work you do for me from fun locations. But I like blaming it on not having reception. I know, but you can't do that here. Working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile, Sona. Then you got no excuses. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anybody else. Check it out if you don't believe me. Hey, Blay, you've got T-Mobile, right? I do. I was actually just up in the woods in Idlewild. It was fantastic for the weekend. And uh, my T-Mobile didn't miss it. My T-Mobile phone didn't miss it. You know, I wouldn't think you'd need a cell phone because you speak so loudly into a microphone. (laughs) Well, I had to look some stuff up. Just take it. Just take it down. I didn't know what brunch was. I can hear him. When the restaurant's open for brunch. Okay. uh, So I used uh, my T-Mobile coverage to check out brunch. That's all right. Anyway, wherever you are, you know, take it from the loud speaking Blay. If you're on the go, you want to be in the know, you want to make the show. What? Uh, T-Mobile. Okay. That's the one for you. That was I should weird. have rhymed it with go. Anyway, <laughs> find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds, according to analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. in today, Sona, I was thinking about just how much has changed over the years. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we were all dancing the Jitterbug and the Watusi. Okay. And then you grow up now and there's mosh pits and everything's gone <laughs> cuckoo. There's this new thing called rap. I don't know what's <laughs> happening anymore. But guess what? In a world full of change, there's one thing that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. The great taste of Miller Lite. Are you with me on oh, this? Oh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And you know, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. Yeah. I hate a filling beer. Yeah. When I have a filling beer, I just want to sit down in a beanbag chair for six days, but not oh. with Miller Lite. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Mm-hmm. Back in 1975, the big debate in America was what's more important, that it it's less filling, Miller Lite, or it tastes great. Yeah. The cool thing is when we all realized it's both. Okay. It's less filling and it tastes great. Yeah, all right. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste. Only 96 calories. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and it's less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash Conan. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Yeah. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. If most people are being honest, no one really knows what you do for work, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, especially if you're in a, what I like to call B2B. Oh, you know? what, what is that? I'll explain. Okay. That's a business doing business with other businesses. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I call it B2B. It's a little thing. It's also, uh, it's a boy band I'm working on. <laughs> anyway, fortunately, LinkedIn has a network of professionals who get what you do and you can reach the right people who matter most to your company because they're LinkedIn. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. LinkedIn has over, this is the fun part to say, one billion members. Are you serious? Yeah. That's not that's more people than are on Earth because there are people on the moon using it in Saturn. <laughs> that's one over one billion members on its platform, including 70 million decision makers. God, I'd like to meet a decision maker. Since LinkedIn members are regularly updating their work history, you can precisely build a target audience by job title, industry, company, and more. Man, you can reach the right people for your, I'm going to say it again, B2B business with LinkedIn ads. Gets even better because LinkedIn will give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Hmm. There you go. Just go to linkedin.com slash Team Coco to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash Team Coco. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. And we're back. Wasn't that fun? Did you like the break? Yeah, no, it was a great break for me. I had a lovely time, yeah. You really did. You yeah, did a no, lot I of... I went out and met a woman. I sat <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a break. You're going to have to tell your wife. But... Uh, oh, don't tell her. Okay. Yeah. This, is, this is your business, not mine. I'm going to flash back to a second when you're... 
when you're a kid and things must have seemed a little gloomy and it's the 1950s and you're in England and Elvis Presley shows up on the radio and it's a bolt of lightning. It certainly changed John Lennon's life, Paul McCartney's life. It, it, it created this seismic wave that invigorated a lot of young people in England. And you were one of them, big Elvis fan. We cut to a number of years later, you find out, and it's true, Elvis Presley, a massive Python fan. Huge Python fan. And not just a Python fan, he was an idol fan. He would call everybody squire from my nudge nudge sketch. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, squire. <laughs> what, the, what? And I met, um, it was his, um, What's her name? His, his, his lady. Uh, Linda Thomas. Linda Thompson. Thompson, that's right. Linda, Linda Thompson. Thompson told me that Elvis was such a Python fan that uh, when they were in, in, in Nashville, yes? Am I in the right place? Memphis. Memphis, sorry. Yeah. When they were in Memphis, after the television went off at night, late, Elvis would make her do Python sketches with him. And not just any Python sketches. He'd make it a, hello, I need a new brain. <laughs> now, if you can think of her and Elvis sitting up in bed doing that sketch without giggling about the absurdities of life. <laughs> I mean, that's in, that to me was incredible. Well, I made her tell me three times before I believed it. And I only believed it because she knew some of the words. I need a curry's brain. Now, nobody <laughs> in America knows what a curry's brain is. So she must have known the sketch. We know, first of all, it's been documented that, uh, you know, his people in his entourage have talked about what a Python fan he mm -hmm. was. And it's also uh, been documented and it's well, I'm a huge Elvis fan. And we all know that Elvis had uh, one of those minds that could memorize, he could memorize an entire movie script. He knew all the, you know, he didn't need prompts for his lyrics. He just, he could memorize huge chunks mm -hmm. of text. And, and so he knew his Python the way other people would know their Torah, you know? He just he just knew it and I think was delighted. He needed an excellent sense of humor. And But the idea that this voice that came through the radio to you in an orphanage somewhere in the 50s would then, you would get inside his brain with something you would come up, says something to me that's very beautiful about the way our world works. It was mind boggling for me. I mean, I couldn't believe it, to be honest, because he did save up. Saved our lives at school. You know, Elvis was the, the, the you know, he was our man. He we, we, our kid. Yeah. <laughs> he was older than us, but he, we, he, that's what we aspired to be. You think of Elvis Presley, such a sex symbol, being in bed with a woman, and you, your mind would, would go to all these crazy places. It wouldn't go to him saying, hey, baby, let's do the, let's do the Python, let's do the Minister Silhouette. You go first, and then I, and I'll do it. Okay, now you're the proprietor, and I'm coming in. I'm looking. You got a parrot. This has been dead. You know, whatever, like, none of that. And then she gets a line wrong. No, no, no. Come on, baby. Get it together. I think we should get an Elvis impersonator to do Python sketches. Yeah. <laughs> with a, a Linda lookalike. Yeah, with a Linda lookalike. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah, he's wearing he's wearing <laughs> he's wearing satin pajamas. Yeah. She's wearing like one of those. Well, I think uh, they have to get into bed to start it too. They come yeah. in with everything and they get into the bed and then they start the and that, and then it's very much yeah. it's, and it's very down to business. Okay, yeah. baby. Yeah. Well, which one are we doing tonight? <laughs> Is your wife a goer? <laughs> oh yeah, we're gonna do a nudge nudge, huh? Okay. Oh, hold on a second. I got it. That'd be fair. <laughs> Maybe there are, uh, you know, because in the 70s, there were people would uh, sometimes get out the old camcorder and there'd be some some sexy filming going on. There might be, maybe he set up cameras, but instead of it being Elvis uh, having sexual adventures, it's Python sketches with Linda, his girlfriend. Well, that would be good to know, wouldn't it? I mean, I... <laughs> well, you also, you'd get a piece of the royalties. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are your words. Well, the Elvis estate, I'm not sure. It's difficult, you know. No, it's like getting me. money out of the Beatles. <laughs> Although we did do that. We did do that, let's be fair. You, you did. You yeah, did get yeah. many, yeah. Well, one of them anyway. Oh, let me ask you something. Uh, you brought it up. The Ruddles. To my mind at the time, I remember it being the first real satiric take on the Beatles. What did the Beatles think? Did you ever hear? Did did John have a take on it? Did they liked it. John John and Yoko apparently liked it and wanted to go down to SNL one night when we were on doing it to promote it. They, mm -hmm. they, they really liked. It. She really liked it. I mean, I I was amazed by that. Yoko is portrayed as Hitler's daughter. Right. <laughs> Loved it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she thought it was hilarious because she was getting so much abuse anyway. Yeah. You know. Um, 
George, of course, was involved and was in it. Yep. Ringo said he liked it after 1968. <laughs> Still, I don't know what he meant by that. I don't know what that means. Puzzle me. Yeah. And uh, Paul was very, very, he was very circumspect. He wasn't very happy. We bumped into him in a park, my wife and I, and, and he was with Linda. And Linda adored it. Right. She nailed him. Right. <laughs> so she kind of like. So oh, she was like, oh, you got me. on and on about how funny it is and yeah. how funny Dirk is. And, and then yeah. he's like, oh. Anyway, he was very happy because he said, oh, it's all right, Linda. He's, they're from, he's from Liverpool. Right. He found out I was from Wallasey in, in Liverpool, so I was all right. Real one of us. Okay. So you once know. he found out that you were uh, from the neighborhood, yeah. that it was okay. It was always okay. I mean, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was not a thing that was commonly done. There weren't rock and roll weren't being mocked a lot. Yeah, you know, uh, we we did it. We had a show called Rotten and Weekend Television, and we would do a lot of rock and roll. So I worked with Neil Innes on it, and we'd have like the All Dead Singer would yeah. come on, and he'd be dead. You know, <laughs> 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 you'd just have video with effects <laughs> during the number. And we did a lot of, um, and we did heavy metal, and you know, we we do a lot of rock and roll. So it was a natural to slip into um, the Beatle parody. And, yeah. and then Neil wrote so effortlessly Beatles songs that were so evidently Beatles songs that uh, it was a matter of how do you how do you film them? How do you what's the story? What, what are you going to produce them as? Yeah, you uh, you hosted Saturday Night Live. I did four times. In four the 70s. times in the seventies. Yeah. yeah, and so there with that original cast. With and the it, original cast, it was the second show of the second series. Yeah, I was on first. It's, and Chevy just got injured. He was in bed. He's still, reco he's still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> he still is. But uh, he'd fallen. He'd done a fall and hurt himself, and he was in bed. So he wasn't on that show. So yeah. I, I went and sat with him for a while because I liked him. I thought he was funny. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, it was, that show was good fun to do, though. I mean, it, that changed America, that show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was uh, – and they were very lovely, that cast. They were very nice. I mean, Lorne sold Saturday Night Live. Uh, he pitched it to NBC as a cross between Monty Python and 60 Minutes. Right. That was his pitch. Right. Which is odd because I wouldn't have thought they'd know about Python at NBC in those days. But that was his that was his dream to make that sort of show. That's what he wanted to do. They may not have known. They may have been doing so much coke <laughs> <laughs> in that meeting. Yes. Uh, music, obviously very important to you. And uh, you are the uh, author of the number one song played at British funerals, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. That song took on a life of its own, obviously, and... It really is. You were the one to tell me this a while ago. It's number one. It's the number one requested song in Britain at funerals. That's you incredible. Know, you, you take it where you can get it. You know, it's not much money. You don't, the royalties are shit. But, well, well, uh, and also, know, they're dead. They're dead. <laughs> it's hard yes. to get money out it's of them at that the point. It's not for the dead. It's for the other people. <laughs> <laughs> royalties. I love you, you show royalties. I love you showing up at that, at that occasion. Like, yeah. where's my money? Yeah. People ask me to go and sing it at their funerals. You fuck off. I'm not going to come to your fucking funeral and sing my song for you. You know. Well, you should ask how much money's involved first. Well, you see, now you said I shouldn't have asked that. No, no. You have you me ask. I'll have I'll, you ask. Okay. Yes. Uh, right. You say, uh, you're, you have seen, Eric, you're above <laughs> these matters. This is where I come in. I, I contact them and I say, well, he, what are we talking about here? And if it's, you know, a couple Peace. hundred thousand dollars yeah. and it's 10 minutes from your house. And you've got the guitar anyway, <laughs> and I get 10%. What's yeah, the big deal? I think that's fair. <laughs> if it's that difficult, those are the right figures. <laughs> and then, of course, the music and your musical ability and your passion for music, I mean, Spamalot must have been just a complete joy for you. Just a massive success, a success on such a scale that I'm bitter. Um, well, you got time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not over, you know. Really? Yeah, you could oh. be the Pantages next week. <laughs> Yeah, could be, I've got an old, I've got an old sword and I, a bit of a crown. Great, yeah, okay, yeah, well then, very well, I think so. Now you're talking. You're very good, Arthur. But uh, <laughs> what a joy that must have been for you to be standing there with Mike Nichols, looking at this production being made, working on the music, working on the the comedy. That must have been fantastic. Well, it was, yeah, it was probably the most fun I had working on anything. The Ruffles was pretty good, but the, working on this with Mike Nichols was just one. He was an old friend of mine. I'd known him for 15 years at that point when we started to work on it. Um, 
but it was it was wonderful because working on a show is just the best thing you can do because you can keep improving it. Mm-hmm. So I was the writer, so I'd have to be the one who went home and stayed up all night and I've got a new draft for you. And it, it wasn't obvious how to make it work. The first, it's good. It's easy to open, get it on, you know, yeah. running around horses. But to bring it home wasn't easy, and it took a while um, because it became something different. It has to become something different. As it's a musical, there's a love story involved. You know, there's a you've got to have an ending. I mean, we, we, we the ending of the Holy Grail is shit. <laughs> <laughs> the guy, a policeman, comes and arrests everybody. I my daughter, love- my daughter says to me, "Is that it?" I loved I it. I said, "Yeah." She said, that's, it. she said, "That's the worst ending I've ever seen of any film." I loved it. So, I'm sorry. I liked it too. It was my idea. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I went to always look on the bright side for the next film. Yeah. You know, let's have a song. Let's, let's have a song. a song. Let's do it right. Yeah. Well, you had a blast with Spamalot. Now you've hit 50 years. 50th anniversary of Python beginning. And uh, I did want to get your take as we wind it down on fame because you have a very interesting take. Yeah. Well, I was very fortunate because I had this friend, George, who was so helpful to me. He was like a guru, really. He give me advice all the time. And we didn't agree on anything, on everything, like religion. Right. We had total disagreement. But, you know, he, he would say, you know, we were the most famous people in the world. We're still going to die. That's right. what his thing was always. This was you George, George yeah, Harrison George, would say always. that. You've got to die. What the hell? It doesn't matter if you're the most famous people on the planet. You're going to die. So you have to face that. What's going to happen? What do you believe? What, you know. So that I found was very interesting philosophically to deal with him on that level. So, and I was at his deathbed, so it was kind of weird. But he, he died very well. I mean, he didn't want to be reborn. Was I give anything to be reborn? You know, right? I'd like to come back. Was um, was anything really? Well, I don't know. Unicorn, I'm not going to follow you unicorn? on that. No. Oh, unicorn! I'd be fine prancing yeah, around are. on a rainbow. I would take that in a second, but I don't want to come back as an electrical outlet, you know, no, or something. No, I, an no, inanimate object. No. Well, you do it very well. Well, thank you. Uh, but I think the point about fame now is, at my age, I find the only use is that it, it helps you to get into doctors. Oh. They're very helpful, and, and they give you the extra medicine. They go the extra yard with the, you know, the, the opioids. They'll give you a bit more than give you, you should a little have. More than yeah, you should they're have. very nice about that, doctors. Yeah, that's very nice. So, especially that's... in America, where you know, everything costs them. <laughs> <laughs> you and your—I mean, you can get sick for nothing in England. <laughs> you and your cradle to grave life insurance, uh, life, life health care. This, this is over now. Uh, you know, Cra- the, cradle to Brexit is what it was. Cr- cradle to Brexit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'll have to go to Northern Ireland now to get a physical. Uh, Southern. Oh, that's right. I forget how it works. I don't really read the news. I read it upside down. <laughs> it's worth um, going to Northern Ireland, though, if you can get into Europe. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. You have the better Guinness, too. It's really good up there in the north. Um, yeah, you said, you know, you mentioned George. And you talk about George a lot. George had a quote about the Beatles that you think also applies to Python. You said that George once said to you, had we known we were going to be the Beatles, we would have tried harder. <laughs> it's such a great. It's just a great line, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But well, first of all, I think they, you don't know you're going to be the Beatles. You don't know you're going to be Python. Python yeah. was just another show we were doing at the time. Yeah, you know, it was like the eighth show we'd done in two years, right? Yeah. Um, he, he would come out with these one-liners. It was fantastic. I was on holiday with him once, and somebody went up to him and said, "Hey, George Addison, what are you doing here?" He said, "Well, everybody's got to be somewhere." Kill a line. Sounds like you must miss him terribly. Ah, oh, yeah. He's, he was fantastic. Fabulous. Just a fabulous fella. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like to always end on a real down note. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. That, though. It's called It's yeah. called Down Note with Conan O'Brien. Well, sorry about your friend. Must be painful. And that's all the time we have. Um, you know what? I, uh, I could talk to you for about six hours. I know that would not be your favorite experience, but it would be mine. Uh, just... Uh, Getting to know you, uh, you are a delightful uh, human being, and I am thrilled about the book. Uh, You're an idiot if you don't go out right now and get Eric Idle, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. It's just a terrific memoir. It really is. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I was really appreciative of what you wrote. It was very nice of you to do that. Well, it was, uh, I mean, just as uh, you say, meeting some of these people that inspired you or hearing that Elvis was a fan, uh, getting to sit uh, across the table from you with some microphones and talk to you 
uh, after all you've done for comedy and for everything is just a real treat. And I know the, the English don't like this kind of sentiment, so I'll end <laughs> on a go fuck yourself. Yeah, all right, thank you. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. I have a concern. <laughs> it's a legitimate concern. Sona, you know that I'm happy for you to do extracurricular things. You're doing a lot of extracurricular things now, and I'm worried that it's going to get in the way of your work. True or false, you just signed up to do, you're hosting an Armenian telethon. Yes, yes. Okay. They're my side hustles. Yes. But that I'm How not many side hustles do you have right now? Well, uh, so my main job is being your assistant. Then I have this podcast. Then I also do the voice for Princess Sugar Salt on a Cartoon Network Cartoon? Is that a show that, yeah, yeah, you keep leaving for this voiceover work. Yeah. And she'll leave, I mean, there'll be stuff going on and I need her and she's like, can't, gotta go. Yeah. And do the voice of Princess Sugar Salt. Yeah, you know what? I did leave once in the middle of the day. And you it did. was really a busy day. That I was bad. Rem I remember and I came upstairs and I needed help with some stuff yeah. and there was just an empty chair there and you're like, yeah, she's off doing side hustle number 15. Yeah, and that's when you were evacuated from your house too because of the fires. Yeah. <laughs> it was the worst possible time to leave work. Yeah, and you were doing the voice of Princess Sugar Salt. So who yeah. can fault you? Um <laughs> And and Bad. how many things do you have? And you have other side projects I know about, some of which you probably can't talk about. Yeah. You have, I legitimately think you have 15 things you're doing outside the show. This is your fault. Mm. Why? Because you, you put me on the show and stuff. Oh, and that's why? Yeah. Do you say no to anything? No. No. I say yes to absolutely everything. Right. I do. Okay. So uh, you're... The, the telethon you're going to host it, are you going to do jokes and stuff? I don't think so. Oh. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you're the host, so you have to do, you're going to prepare? Aren't they going to give me like cards? I don't just go out there and read what's on the, you have to be part of it. It's got to come from your personality. Oh, I don't know. I don't think I'm you doing it. You have like a grand host here that you can pick the brain of to get a little insight on Yeah, oh, okay. I could help. I'm good. Oh God. I'm good. I'm You're good. I'm you think good. you got it? No, I don't think I got it. I You're, think I'm going to, I don't think I'm going to do a great job. <laughs> what? I don't think I'm going to do you know, a good job Where's of being your, a host you, of the Armenian telethon. <laughs> if, if I were you, I'd be scheming to crush it. That's the difference between us. I would be losing my mind thinking, how can I just destroy being the, uh, you know, host of the Armenian telethon? Yeah. Well, that's the difference between you and me. I wing it. And it's usually not very good. You uh, prepare and that's why you are, uh, you know, a, a, a very well-known person. <laughs> oh my God, that's the best you could give me? <laughs> The, the Hillside Strangler is a very well-known person. <laughs> and a pretty damn good host. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell was that? You struggled to say anything nice about me. <laughs> a very well-known person. <laughs> it's true, you are. And keep in mind, all of this is, while, is happening while you're committed to, at work, re-watching the first season of New Girl. Yes. <laughs> who re-watches the first season of New Girl? New Girl's fine, but you don't re-watch the first season. What are you it's and not like you missed something. And it's at work. <laughs> It's at work. I know. I'm so sorry. That's not cool. Plus, you've got to do like two Sudokus a day. Three. Okay, three. I do easy, medium, and hard. Easy is basically not even I was one. joking when I said two, <laughs> and then you corrected me and said three, and you're serious. I am serious. 
Yes. Do you also do the New York Times Crossword Puzzle? I do. Okay. And you're rewatching the first season of New Girl? Yes. And you're hosting the Armenian Telethon? Yes. And you've got, uh, you're the voice of Princess Sugar Salt? Uh Uh-huh. And you uh, also have like, seriously, six other things you're doing, some of which I can't mention. They're in development. They're my side hustles. Um, You always say, you treat me like number two. Like, you always say something. You what? always, like, yeah, I don't know. About? You're always walking around because you're like, uh, can someone help me with something? And, like, I'm usually just not paying attention to it. Well, what I do that's the only way to get attention from you is I ask other people to do the things that you're supposed to be helping me with. And you see them <laughs> go help me with it. And it's someone who's not qualified usually to do it. Right. Someone who's, like, 22 and I'm asking them to go get my antipsychotic medication. <laughs> you need to I up don't your really dose. have antipsychotic medication. You need to up that dose. Or yeah. do I? Anyway, strengthen that. And then you go, hey, what are they doing that for? I was going to get to that once I finished season six of Hogan's Heroes. <laughs> Look it up, kids. It's a worthy reference. You're a cottage industry. I don't know. I just need money for a house. Why don't you do a Kickstarter? <laughs> that is. So not, that's not why Kickstarter should Yeah, but exist. so many people, so many celebrities are like, I want to make an independent film. This is my Kickstarter. I thought Kickstarter was for people that had like a brain tumor and didn't have any money. Yeah. And then there's tons of people out there like, you know, I want to launch my own beauty line. Well, you're thinking, of, you're thinking of GoFundMe. Yeah. GoFundMe is oh. more for the sick people. Yeah. Kickstarter is oh. like, I have this project that I love, like help me pay for it. What if your project is not dying? <laughs> I'm doing a Kickstarter from this new project called I Don't Want to Die. I Don't uh, Want to Die. I'm sorry if you're feeling neglected, but I, you know, you're fine. Do you think I really am neglected somewhat sometimes? Or yeah. do you think this is all me having phantom symptoms of being the middle child of six? Uh, oh. Can I weigh in? Yeah, yeah clearly, go ahead. yes. You think so, really? Yeah, I think it's got to be, right? Yeah, middle, middle child, six kids, one born every year. Wow. My parents sometimes gave two of us the same name just because they <laughs> weren't paying attention. <laughs> There's two Lukes in my family. <laughs> How do you do that? And one of them's a girl. They had no idea what was going on. I met two of my siblings uh, in the bathroom four years ago <laughs> when I went home for the holidays. So you yeah, are my, a lost boy. There are yeah, I am a lost boy. I got lost in the middle, and uh, some t- and I had uncles that didn't know my name. They, one uncle called me Hamfat. <laughs> I'm not kidding. One uncle was like, hey, ham fat. And I hated that. That's great. He was like, hey, ham fat, get over here. Ham fat. Hey, look at ham fat. Ham fat? Ham fat. He called me ham fat. My uncle called me ham fat. Did he call other people that? Or was no, that- he called me ham fat. I don't think he knew my name. I honestly don't think he knew my name. But he had to have looked at you and the image of ham fat had to have come to his mind. And I wasn't a fat kid. I was a thin kid. But I think my head looked like, like a leg, salted ham. A cartoon leg of I don't know. Ham. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's the kind of world I grew up in. Oh. And my mom had nicknames for me. Pigeon pie. It's pigeon pie. You've heard that one. Yeah. Yeah. But you've I, heard me. I've heard, I've, wait, baloney boy. Baloney boy. <laughs> Why are these all meat related? I don't know, but my mom still sometimes I'll call her up and she'll go like, oh, pigeon pie. And then she'll say, oh, my baloney boy. Because I liked baloney in 19, you know, during the Tet Offensive. <laughs> 1968, I was eating some bologna. She was like, oh, hello, bologna boy. And so you heard me the other day. I think I was on the speakerphone yeah. or something, and you heard her go like, oh, my bologna boy, and yeah. you lost it. Here's the point. Ham fat. Here's Ham the point, and I will bring this home. No one knew my name. So I was called bologna boy and ham fat and pigeon pie, all s- versions of meat, yeah. crude meats. And that's because we were just this meat-obsessed Irish tribe. This is all 100% true. I know. Oh, I don't I know, doubt right? it for a second. And, I know. It and then you true. wonder why I feel neglected at work <laughs> when you're watching season two of whatever, Gilmore Girls, which you've watched nine times. I've never seen Gilmore Girls. You've never seen Gilmore Girls? No. I can't believe that. Everyone watches Gilmore I Girls. I know. And people say that I sometimes talk like Lauren Graham. Yeah. But I never got into it. Mm. I, I see you more as a Lorelei. Oh, <laughs> wow. I never missed an episode. Um, I'm glad we got this out there. Shout out to my mom. Moms, love you, moms. I never called her mom. I, I know. Why did you do that? But uh, now I call her Ma. Hey, Ma. I call my mom Ma. Yeah, I call her Ma now just because yeah. it sounds so antiquated. I know. I that's it. the best uh, way Welford. To, yeah, yeah. Welford. Oh, Welford. Hmm. Yep. I call her Ma. And uh, shout out to my ma. She doesn't listen to the podcast 
I don't think my father does either because they don't know how to get it. Yeah, and same. I keep explaining to them and they were like, well, we turned on the TV and it didn't come on. <laughs> so you'll never hear this. No. Anyway. Uh, well, good we- work, mutton dick. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if my uncle had had 10 more minutes to think about me, he probably would have called me mutton dick. <laughs> <laughs> Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, with Sonam Obsessian and Conan O'Brien as himself. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Chris Bannon at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. The show is engineered by Will Becton. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It, too, could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, zero to two grams net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.